Got your Bibles? You ready for Judges? I am not. No, I'm kidding. Sort of ready. Judges chapter 1, just kind of hang out there. We've got some work to do before we get into the text this morning. I don't know how familiar you are with Judges. I've met some of you who have read it and know the story, but most people, if we're just being honest, when it comes to some of these Old Testament narratives, just kind of go around that. Skip it. So let me just throw out the warning and the caution before we get into Judges. Judges is an R-rated book. Don't worry, parents. We're not going to say anything inappropriate. What I'm suggesting to you is that Judges would make a great movie. There is violence and mutilations and murder and rape and all the gore of everything a man or woman could ever event in its sinful inclination. And it's all right here. And it has to do with God's chosen people. So it's, it couldn't get more messy. And there's so many truths. I don't have time to unpack this all, but there's so many truths that we're going to bump into over the next six weeks or seven weeks together. One is we're going to run into this theme that's throughout the scriptures, and that is God's grace, that God offers this unmerited favor to people who don't deserve it and many times don't even care that they have it. That is God's people, and we're going to see that in this story. We're also going to experience that God wants something very specific out of us. Are you ready for it? Total obedience. That's not a popular message today, but God is looking for absolutely everything, 100%. You're going to see that in this story. We're also going to discover the reality that uh, there is a tension that we're running into and we'll run into every week. There's a tension between grace and law. You ever heard this before? That God offers this thing, this benevolence, this mercy, this grace. It's unearned, it's unmerited, and yet he commands And they hang there in that tension, and we're going to find out that the only answer to that tension is Jesus in the gospel. So hang in for that. The other reality that we're going to bump into is that because of the inclination of the human heart to wander away, we better be very good at repentance. If there's anything we're going to relate to in this, it's going to be relating to the sin and the people. And so because of their tendency and our tendency to walk off from God, we should be also very quick to return. That's what God calls his people to do. That's what we're going to learn striking to me when you read Judges how much we need a Savior. If there's any truth that this story will tell us is that we need Jesus, we need help. We need something not of ourselves. We can't fix this. And then one major theme would be his sovereignty. He's in charge, church. He's in charge of everything. Every aspect of this world, of this chaos you look at and say, man, we need something here and and your plan is a new president or your plan is a war over here and none of that, none of that matters. We need him. And that's where this is going, in complete and total him in control. So um, let me give you what I think is going to be helpful, just briefly, just a couple of minutes on uh, how I want you to look at a narrative. Many people come to narratives, Old Testament stories, and they don't know what to do with them. And so they make the mistake of, one, spiritualizing it. They read themselves. They think it's about them. And so, for instance, let me use an example. So you read the story. This is a familiar story of David and Goliath, and suddenly you are David killing your giants. And that's not what those narratives are for, okay? Every narrative has a punchline. And I've told you this a thousand times, but this is the punchline. Everything is about Jesus. If you see something like David and Goliath, just tell yourself that it needs to be a better redeemer than David, a better deliverer than that king. And Jesus is the one. He is the punchline to every conclusion. So don't, don't spiritualize the text. But let me give you the rule of the road when it comes to narrative. Always true. And you can never miss if you apply this, these questions to uh, any kind of story. One is narratives in the Old Testament always say something consistent about mankind and something consistent about God. 
The nature of man has always been the same. His inclination to sin and wander off has always been the same. And God's response to man has always been the same. Okay, so take that lens and we'll read through these texts together for the next couple weeks and we will learn exactly what the gospel story is in an Old Testament narrative thousands of years old, okay? All right, I, I did a very poor job at 8 o'clock, so I'm hoping this is going to be better in 9.30 because I gave them too much. I could see it leaking out of their ears at, at 8, and that's not good. So this is what we're doing next. I don't feel it would be justice for me just to jump into judges. So therefore, I'm going to give you all of human history in two minutes, okay? Very easy to do. It's two minutes, all of history. You ready? 2,600 years. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God made man. He said, this is your place. Knock your socks off. Have fun. Be blessed. Multiply. Be fruitful. Do what you do. And man did, except God said, don't eat of this tree. And yet, man didn't obey. And plunged all of us, all of mankind, into a curse, a curse of sin, separation from God. That's the curse. And nothing has been the same since. Nothing has been right since. All men are born sinners. And the world went deeper and deeper in that sin. This is how God saw it. God saw that the wickedness of man was great and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he made man. That was the condition of the, the world after man decided to do what he wanted to do. Sin did that. Well, after many, many years, God decides time's up. I'm not going to contend with that heart anymore. I'm going to reboot and so he finds Noah, the righteous man, and says, Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to kill off everybody. I'm going to start again with you. And God did just that. He starts again with Noah. Hundreds of years go by, and God makes this promise to a man called Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to do something special with you. I'm going to go on display through you and through the people from you. I'm going to make you a great nation. In fact, this is how God said this covenant to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, he details even more of that blessing. And he says, Abraham, look, look at the stars. Go out here. Look, look at the heavens. You see the stars? That's how, that's how many your family will be. That's how I'm going to bless you. And so Abraham, in a, his old age, had to believe a promise. He's 100 years old when God delivers on that promise. And he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son, two sons. Jacob and Esau, I know that Paul taught this a couple weeks ago, but Jacob, by deception, earns the birthright. And so the promises of all this covenant with God are coming through him now. And so Jacob, he, he uh, deceives his way to the birthright, and he has 12 sons. The 11th son in that little line of men was the favored son, but he was also the hated son. So his brothers decide, time to get rid of him, and they sell him into slavery. They make up a story, and they give him to Egypt and tell their dad they, that he's dead. Joseph, and if you read the story, amazing set of circumstances, ends up in a foreign land and has been uh, misjudged and accused and imprisoned. But through an amazing series of events, he climbs the ladder of leadership and ends up foremost in all of Egypt. In fact, the only one above him is Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants nothing to do with leading, so he gives it to Joseph. And Joseph is running the entire, the entire world at that point in time. And the Bible tells us exactly why, because there's a famine coming, and God wanted to protect his people. And so what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And here is Joseph now in, in the position of protector and redeemer for his people. Hopefully you're getting this lineage, this line. Jesus is always the punchline. Joseph guards his people, feeds his people, and his people are saved through his redemption. Make sense? Well, 
Joseph gets old. And the king who knew Joseph in Israel died, and the next king didn't remember Joseph. And he changes the plan. He says, well, I don't want to live with them. I don't want to favor them. And so he oppresses Israel. And Israel goes into 400 years of slavery, building cities for Pharaoh, making bricks as an occupation. And they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, redeem us, save us, save us. 400 years of slavery. God, again, arrives with a redeemer. His name is Moses. And Moses rises up and as well, through a wonderful series of events, amazing stories, God liberates um, the people from slavery in Egypt. And so he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place of your own. Leave and go get it. And so Israel marches out into the desert, leaves Egypt and heads towards home, only to do what they always do, rebel against God and go their own way. And so God stops the progression of the promised land and says, you people aren't responding, you're not obeying, you're deceiving all the time, and so let's just fix this. And so that generation of people wandered the desert for 40 years, miles from home, until God killed off everyone who wouldn't believe. We know of only two, I mean, there's obviously more than just two, but two people are mentioned as people who never quit in their faith and trust of God. We've got Joshua, the leader, and Caleb, the leader. And these two men were left, okay? That is 2,600 years of history. If you pick up this book, the one before it, in Joshua, you see this wonderful record of 30 plus years of Joshua's leadership as finally the people of God are ready to cross over the Jordan and possess the land that God promised his ancestors a long, long time ago. And that's what he does. And he goes in and he does amazing battles and things that you would never do, marching around walls and they fall. You got to read it. It's an amazing story. And so all of that happens in the book of Joshua. And to do exactly what God told them to do, I don't have time to read it, but Deuteronomy 7 makes it really clear. Here's what I want you to do. Here's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to go and take the land. I want you to destroy all the people there. I don't want you to intermarry with them, and I want you to take down and destroy all their idols and their religion. Do you understand? That's the job. Go and do it. It's clear what they were told to do. Okay, so now I'm giving you the theme of Judges. We've gotten ourselves all the way through Genesis, all the way through Joshua. Here we are on the threshold of Judges. Judges is simply supposed to be the mop-up campaign for everything God had told the people of Israel to do up until this point. Joshua had fought most of the significant battles. There were a few people left. There were a few things to do. Okay, I'm dying, Joshua says, now go and finish the job. And so they were supposed to go in and do exactly what God told them to do. Just, just clean the place up, get it ready to be home, okay? But what is supposed to be a simple task like a mop-up campaign turns into 300 years, 300 years of uh, struggle, of people disobeying God and God sending a deliverer, or in this case, it's called a judge, a judge to come and deliver God's people, to save them. It's an endless cycle of sin and rescue. That's what judges is all about. You got it? Shake your head. You got it? Okay. Let me show you uh, kind of the theme. And if you kind of highlight these passages, you're going to know exactly what judges is about, no matter where you pick up in the story. Pick up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see this theme. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum 
And he said, I brought you up from, your, from Egypt and brought you into land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, God said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. Verse 16. And the Lord rises up judges. Do you get the context? Because you wouldn't, God said, then they're going to be a snare. The, the snare of these people will be these oppressors. And so here's what happens. The Lord raises up judges who saved God's people from out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord, get this, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, I've commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their father did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand uh, of Joshua. Okay, right there, you've captured it. That is the essence of this, of this book. Story after story, event after event, person after pe person tells of the gory nature of sin, the inclination of the human heart, no matter what, to wander from God. And it tells the other half of the story. Time and time again, God is moved by, not us, not our obedience, but by his pity and his grace for our pain. And he comes and he rescues. And if there's anything you ever learn about the scriptures, you need to see it from Genesis all the way to the end of the, of the Bible is that God sees pain, he sees suffering that our own choices and sin produced, and he will not stop at anything to bring a redeemer. And that's who Jesus is. That's who we celebrate. Every one of these stories, every one of these judges, every one of these heroes is a picture of the ultimate hero who is Christ. Does that help? Okay. So let me be up front and say there's absolutely no way in the next seven weeks we're going to read all 20-some chapters of Judges. We can't do it. It's too long. But I did tell some of the uh, folks on, on staff to uh, put on the website uh, the kind of teaching schedule for the next seven weeks. So if you wanted to just go on there and see what chapters to read ahead of time, that would really help me help you as we kind of discern our way through this narrative because we can't touch them all. Okay. Here we go. Judges chapter 1. Let's begin. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against him? Sounds really good. Good start, right? Really good start. Joshua's dead. He did this. We'll mop it up. Just tell us who's supposed to go. And here's what they say. Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into his, his hand. Sounds good, but look at, there's a problem almost at the very beginning. S subtle, but it's still there. Verse 3, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me. 
into the territory, and I'll go up with you. Something happened. God was giving specific instructions to the people of Israel to do exactly what he said. And the very beginning of their taking over the leadership from Joshua, Judah has this crack in his faith, this kind of half-hearted discipleship. Like, I'm in, but I'm kind of afraid. Like, I want to follow you, and I want to believe that this is supposed to be our land, and we'll drive them out, and we'll have success, but I'm certain i got to hedge my bet somewhere, so I'm going to take my bro with me. Sam, Simeon's got to go, and he's going to help me fight, and I'll do it for him, and we'll have more success. Now, I just want you to hang on to that subtle little thought, because in spite of that subtle little, I think, negligence on his part, God still delivers. He still does what he promises, and he blesses the fight anyway. Now, I don't want you to make the mistake that somehow you can be clever, and decide there's another way to obey God, and God will still keep his promises. Here's, here, in, in this sense, here, here's what we need to understand. In this particular case, God blesses not because they were clever, but because it was his fight anyway. God had said, I'm going to do it. I'm giving the land. I will fight. I will provide. Everywhere through, every narrative that's talking about God's command to his people to do, God owned this. He said, it's mine. I will do this, and I will deliver. It's his fight. It's his promise. That's what verse 4 says. God gave them the victory. And so it happens. Judah fights. He fights against the Canaanites. One particular king um, is Adonai Bezik. And Adonai Bezik sees things turning bad, and he takes off running. They catch him, and here's what they do. First R-rated scene. They cut off his thumbs and cut off his toes. Great way to kill a warrior, by the way. They can't hold a weapon against you, and they can't run. You just kind of dismantle his ability to fight. That's why they did it. Now, stop for a second. As soon as we start talking about the gory things like that that end up in the Bible, and to almost read that God sanctions them, the modern mind goes, wait a minute, time out. There's a problem here, because that God right there doesn't jive with this New Testament God right here. There's some kind of misconnection for me. Like, I, I love the God of mercy and grace and love. I love the God who puts himself in harm's way. I love that God. But this God who kind of rises up with terror and comes after people and commissions a, a knucklehead group of people like Israel to lop off thumbs and toes, I don't, I'm not into that. Well, I think it's good for, if I just stop and kind of mention a couple things. One is to give you some tools. Um, I know last week I mentioned this book, or I think a couple weeks ago, this is Tim Timothy Keller's Judges for You. Uh, Aaron ordered a bunch of these in, so there's more there for you. But the particular thing I want you to look at is in the back of this in the appendix, there is a, uh, a chapter called Holy War, which would really help you understand a different perspective if you're confused between the Old Testament and New Testament God. And there's another book he doesn't have, but it's worth grabbing if you're really interested. Uh, Chris Wright has a book called The God I Don't Understand. And there's two particular chapters in there describing the problem with the Canaanites. So th that might be helpful to you. But before we plow on, I think it's important for us, because I think it's thematic throughout the entire book, for me to give you a couple of things to consider when these things that don't seem like the benevolent kindness of God show up from his own hands. So let me give you some things to think about. First of all, this conquest in, in Canaan is a very unique, a very limited event where in all the scripture it's described as an act of God and not a prescription for war. Some people would look at this and say, that's how you do it. That's how we act towards outsiders. That's how we treat our enemy. And that at all, not at all is what the Bible says. This is described from the beginning to the end as a specific thing that God is going to do, unique. And this is how Keller puts it. 
The conquest then stood as a monument to God's faithfulness and mighty power. It was not a monument to Israel's military brilliance. It was not some great national achievement that could be replicated any time the Israelites felt inclined to do some Canaanite bashing. When we look at the conquest in this way as unique and limited, a specific act of God located firmly within the narrative of Israel's early history of salvation, it also helps us understand why Jesus could prohibit his disciples from emulating the violence of the Old Testament without condemning the Old Testament itself. Does that make sense? It was a specific place and time where God was acting. It was not a prescription, okay? Let me give you the second thing will help you understand the violence or the prescribed work of God in, in this time. You have to see it through the lens of God's divine justice, his justice, okay? Not as some unfair, undeserved treatment of an innocent people. That's not what's going on here. It's, it's interesting to me, like every other story in your own life or every story you read in the Bible, there's way more things that God's doing than just the obvious. Isn't that true? Well, let, let me just break this apart. For, for this story particularly, what we're going to learn, what I've just said is this, that God has told his people, I'm giving you a land. That's clearly happening. God is delivering on a promise. But there's something else happening in this story of God giving his people land. He's bringing justice to a very wicked group of people through his people, Israel. That is also happening here. Now, it's hard for us when we know the history of Israel to be inclined to like that story. But this is generally true of most people. We go to movies because we really dig the good guy beating the bad guy. We love it when that happens. We applaud when that happens. That's what makes a great movie. A good, moral, right character beats the bad guy down who deserves to be, be beaten down, right? And we, that, that sounds right, feels right to us. You read the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you just kind of almost skip it because that kind of reaction, fire from heaven on a wicked nation like that, yeah, of course, that's how it should be. But we see this and we kind of go, I don't know if I like this, but you have to understand something about the Canaanites. They have dropped into a moral abyss. Deuteronomy describes this group of people as uh, people who would temple prostitution. That was part of their religion. Um, but not only the prostitution, but uh, human sacrifice. In fact, they were really great at killing children. They would sacrifice children for their gods. If you pick up the story of the Canaanites, it would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. I mean, it was, it was rough, it was bad, and God was bringing judgment to it. And so you have to see this command of God that it isn't some form of genocide against the people or some form of imperialism for Israel just to dominate the planet. That's not at all what's going on. This is divine judgment. This is the way it's always been that God brings judgment, when and how he sees fit, divine judgment. In fact, just to remind you, it might bother the modern mind, but it certainly didn't bother those who he brought it to. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Adonai Bezek has had his toes cut off and his thumbs cut off, and this is what he says. Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Even the wicked know when God's coming with justice. And Adonai Bezik knew it, and that's what's happening here, right? The other thing is, is to remember that this isn't some kind of warped, unfair favoritism God is demonstrating to Israel. Because if you know anything about Israel's history, God is bringing the same kind of justice to them. Eventually, Assyria comes and takes Israel off because Israel started sacrificing humans and temple prostitution as well. And so he brings that same kind of destruction to them. God is fair with his justice, even to his promised people. One last thought. Because we look at Israel and we go, man, 
it would be so much better. The story would work so much easier for me if this was a pure people who were devoted to kindness and good deeds and loved others, but they're chuckleheads. Every time I read a story about Israel, they're doing something wrong. Who do they think they are to bring judgment on the Canaanites? They, God should pick somebody else. Well, if that's part of your thinking, then, then, and I understand it, then there's a biblical truth you need to understand, okay? And that is this, and I'm going to quote Keller here. Um, God can use one nation as a stick to punish another, but the stick he uses may itself be very bent. And that is, that is human history. That's how it works. In, in other words, what Israel was doing wasn't a work of a, some kind of moral position. It was a response to a, a divine decree. And that helps you understand how God could take something as imperfect and crippled as this people, Israel, and use them to bring justice on another crippled people in war with God. So anyway, I want you to hang on to those thoughts because we're going to bump into them over and over again for the next six weeks, okay? Let's get back to the story. Remember where we were? Judah start, looked like he started out well, a little crack in his faith um, to take Simeon with him, a little half-hearted belief. And in the middle of this story that the, the narrator is trying to tell us, he inserts this other person, another family in here, and it's the family of Caleb, this spiritually faithful family. In fact, in all of Judges, I think you're going to find this one group of people who really get, understand, and follow God as God requires. Caleb is the one, and his family is, as well. Look at verses 12 and 13. And Caleb said, he who attacks, carrieth Sefer, and captures it, I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. So here's the story. Uh, Caleb has called up another one, another redeemer to go and fight, and so Othniel steps up, and he makes this promise. And Othniel not only wins the city, he wins the girl. This is to make a great movie. And so here's what happens with this family. Oxna says to her husband, go and ask dad for some land. Go ask him for some inheritance. And he does. And, and Oxa goes up to her dad and says, and give us springs. M- most writers would suggest that what Oxa is doing there as a chip off the old block was really understanding God's promise. And so she was saying, I want to live here. I want to experience the blessings of here. I want all of God's provisions from here. He's given it to us. It's ours. Let us settle in. Let's make roots here. And so here in this depiction, and we'll see again in just a little bit, that Caleb, Oxa, Othniel, all believe, believe. And the text doesn't even tell us anything more than, than Othniel went and did it. One guy, whatever. He followed the commands and God blessed it. So you have this kind of island of faithfulness right here before we come back to the story. Contrast compare to unfaithfulness. So you have Oxa and Caleb and Othniel like wholehearted trust and belief in God and his promises and take it by faith and go and do it. And then you have Judah kind of hanging around the edges, kind of half-hearted followers. And so this is what it says, verses 18 and 19. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ascalon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. So good so far, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. What's the next word? But. should circle that word because that's a problem. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. You might want to write this in your notes, but Joshua chapter 1, God has already made it very painfully clear what he would do in this battle. And he said, listen, I've already given it to you. Go get it. It's your land. 
In fact, God made a promise that no one's going to be able to stand against you. So just be strong, be courageous, and go get it. Just go do it. That's what God said in Joshua chapter 1. So here we find a problem. And here's the problem as, as Judah saw it. He looks at the chariots of iron and he says, he concludes, I can't. Can't. I, I know you said it was mine. I know you said it was already mine. I should go get it. But they're chariots of iron. I, I can't do that. That's how Judah saw it. But look at chapter 2, verse 2. This is how God saw it. And God, again, repeating this covenant, he said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Judah suggests that he could not. God says, no, you would not. There's a big difference. And isn't that the description of every single person in this room when we experience our sin? It's not that we don't know what we should do, most of us. And it's not that God hasn't provided the power or the opportunity to obey. It's that in our calculation, the circumstances or the issues at hand, we conclude that, mm, no, no, really, I, I won't. I, I'm not, I'm not going to obey. We fail because we won't. We are a people of excuses just like Israel is. There's a, there's a good reason, isn't there? Why we don't obey? Look up for a second. I want you to be dead honest with your heart. Isn't there always a good reason? It's my wife. Man, I would obey you, God. I would be so in, but she's such a knucklehead. I can't. God, it's my circumstance, my, my position in life. I don't have enough money in my pockets to obey you. I can't do this, and I can't do that. My circumstances are different. My kids are a wreck. I can't, I can't obey you, God. God's not looking at it that way. God makes a command. He provides a way, and he says, go and do and obey and experience a blessing, and we're looking for excuses. And it's just like the people here. But watch the difference that faith makes. Verse 20, it's just like an island of faith. One, one sentence. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses said, and he drove out, drove out from it the three sons of Anak. What an amazing story. I don't have time to tell you. Briefly, if you back way up to the people of God, when Moses said, we're going to send spies into the promised land to find out if it's exactly what God said, it was Caleb and Joshua that returned and said, yep, perfect, and we can do it. But the other spies said, no, 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 no. The place is scary, and giants live there. And it was Caleb at 40 years old who said, oh, give me the giant land. I'll take the giants. But because God's people wouldn't obey, they had to wander for 40 years as all of those unbelievers died off. So here we have a man at 80 plus who has every reason and every excuse to say, man, I'm too tired. Man, I believed back then. I, I suffered the consequences of a rebellious people. I'm going to let somebody else take care of the fighting. All the text simply tells us is that Caleb not only continued to believe, he marched right back into the land of the Anax, where the giants live, the Nephilim live. I don't know what it means other than big people with capacity or something. I don't know. Every reason why you shouldn't go and do it, and he did it, and he won, just like God said he would. Right there, little island of faith. And, and it happens. And it, Caleb and his family appear to be the only ones who really believe in God's strength. But then begins the sequence again. Remember I told you this on again, off again thing? Here comes the sequence of overwhelming clap, collapse of faith in the people. 
I don't have time to read it all, but just a couple things. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. Let me get that back to that. Verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in, in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of, of Beth Shean. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, and Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, and Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, and Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. You see that? I guarantee you every one of them had an excuse. You can even see some of them in here because some of them were forcing the Canaanites into forced labor. My guess is they stopped and said, you know what, let's not kill them all. We can use them. We can build God's kingdom with them. There's a reason why I do what I do. I'm smarter than God. And here you have, did not, did not, did not, did not, did not, did not drive out. Now watch this little island, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this little spot in the text tells you why they did not drive out. Verses 22 through 26. The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Lutz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them into the way of the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Now that reads so well. I mean, that's the way you do warfare. Careful thought. Hey, let's get this guy and find out if he has a... In and, and by the way, it almost sounds benevolent and kind to say, we'll let you live too. Isn't that what we do at moments like this? This is the right way, right? Smart and strategic and, and even kind. But there's a phrase or a word in there that's going to change every bit of your interpretation of this. And it's in verse 24. Here's what they did. And they said, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly. That's one word in the Hebrew. It's hesed. The word hesed. The word hesed means um, covenant loving kindness. Show us in and we'll make a covenant with you. What did God tell them? Make no covenant with anybody there, right? We look at this and say, well, they won the war, they drove out the city, and they treated a man kindly, but here's what we don't like. They made a promise of loving kindness to a people God said not to do that with. And watch what happened. They didn't drive out anybody. All he did was pick up roots and move down the road and build the same city called Lutz. He just relocated. They didn't drive out anybody. All because they knew better. All because they thought they knew. Ever been there and done that? Every one of us have a, a way to improve on God's instruction and the tragedy is almost unbearable. Look at the outcome, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. This is the outcome, a little bit of a surprise. Of course, we've read this before, but now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of the, from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your father. So far, so good. I said, I will not, never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And this is what, what is this you have done? So now I say, now here's the consequence. I will not drive them out before you. It's always the way it works with sin. You want it? God says you can have it. 
I'm trying to give you by my commands blessings and joy and peace and freedom, and we're deciding that God doesn't know enough to help me, so I add something to the equation of what God said, and God simply says, okay, you want that sin? You can have that sin. And how many of us in here don't have scars, lots of scars, who've chosen to do something other than God has said and gotten all and more of what we wanted, and it's just wrecked us? Isn't that true? It wears us out. And so that's what happened here. You want it, you got it. Israel responds for a brief period of time for the, at least the remainder years of this generation with faith, the text tells us. They trusted and obeyed. But there was another generation, just brutal. Verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he'd done in Israel. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase right there, we're going to see at least nine or ten more times in this story. God rescues, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over again, a nauseating sequence of events. Now, I don't have enough time to unpack everything that you could ever learn from some narrative like this, but I do have a couple of thoughts, if you'll bear with me just for a couple of minutes. Remember what I said about the rule of narratives and when you interpret, they always say something consistent about man and God. Well, here you go. Here's a couple of consistencies. Um, Doing something like Israel has done here, something inconsistent with being faithful to God can always be made to sound reasonable, right? Right? Man, I know I've got a problem with the computer. I know I've been to those sites too many times, but... I got a job and I don't send emails and I got a thousand reasons why this good tool needs to be kept in my house unguarded. Why do I do kind of questionable business ethics? Because everybody else is doing it, right? I mean, that's the way to make business. We've decided that's the American way and so I don't want to ever lose and you just kind of do your own math. There's everything inconsistent with obedience can be made to sound right. That's what we do. Very few of us, I don't know if anybody, yeah, I'm doing something stupid. Yeah, total disobedience. We justify it. Here's another truth. Spiritual slide is always gradual. I know that verse in verse 10 looks like they just threw a switch and another generation walked off, but that's not how it goes, and you know that, right? One generation isn't faithful and the next walking away without some inconsistency. Here's my guess. Here's my guess. That as much as they did things the way God wanted, I think they neglected to have all these things seen in every way and every time in every person's life. And so there was this place where the next generation grew up and knew the stories. Because my guess is they were faithful in telling things like the Exodus and telling of God's faithfulness. But there were some inconsistencies in their heart and their life. And so kids grow up and go, you know what? They don't really believe it. We, we could do classes until Jesus came back on that. A group of people who confess with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. There's so many inconsistencies in our life. And let me just tell you this. It's, this is not a discussion about perfection. This is a discussion about living a life of repentance. Repenters, broken people, tell the story of the gospel. When, when we can look back at our lives and see our kids just blowing up and next generation just blowing up, there's something we didn't do. There's something we didn't say, and there's something we didn't live for clearly enough that it was undeniable. So, 
some of this decline just looks like taking a little ease, a little distraction, a little too busy to lead, a little inconsistent life, and suddenly there you have it, a bunch of idiots. Sorry if that hurt. Um, let me just tell you this, too. Re- not remembering God is not like, oh, my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know. I don't know anything about God. No, not remembering requires rebellion. I guarantee you these people sat down for Passover. I guarantee you they talked about the Redeemer. I guarantee you they went through the stories. My guess is every one of them could pass the test. But it really is about rebellion. It's knowing and then not responding to what you know. It's like, no, I know better. Remember that. I want you to remember this too. People don't just simply make a decision to turn away from God. They turn from God to something else. And it always involves addition. You, you've heard me talk about it this way. You, you don't wake up tomorrow and go, you know what? Never mind this God thing. I'm done with God. You wake up tomorrow and you go, I think it's God and something else. Like, I know what I need for my happiness. I know what I need for my obedience. A new wife. Jesus plus. I know what I need to do this or do that. I need Jesus plus. And subtly and very carefully, you just continue to do addition. And your life grows from faith alone and Christ alone to something else. Something altogether different than the gospel. It's subtle. And because we're living in a culture that lives in subtle, we can't spot it. We just continue to do addition. This is a warning, and I, I've got to say it, and uh, it's no fun, and I know it's not popular in our day, but if you fail to take the anger and the wrath of God seriously, you are courting disaster. And I, I'm not enjoying talking about the wrath of God, but his wrath is equally as true as his love, and we've got to understand that. His wrath is just as real as his mercy and his grace. His wrath is just as real as his holiness. It's who he is. He has right reaction, a right wrath towards sin. And if you... If you fail to take it seriously, then you need to know you're, you're playing with disaster because the wrath of God is real. The text tells us that. It's not without cause. And it will be perfectly aligned with everything he's already told you he would do if you rebel. There's no surprises here. God's not looking to condemn people. He's looking to save. A couple more and we're done. The surest way to end up loving the world is to bind yourself to someone who already does. Israel was so told, listen, the reason why you got to get rid of them and their altars is because I know you and I know what you'll do when you're with them. You'll become like them and you'll adopt them and you'll wear their stuff and you'll do their things and pretty soon you'll build up asterisks and bales of your own and you'll do that and they did that. God knows. Here's what happens in us so, so unconsciously. We do the very thing that the word of God says not to do. We love the world, and here's why. Because we wrap our hearts around those who do, and we become just like them. And one last thing. It is the most important thing of all in this entire book. Let the book of Judges remind you that we all need a true and better judge. That's the point of these narratives. They're pointing to one Savior who fixes the problem, the tension between my inability to do and God's command to get it done. God does that through Christ for us. Jesus is the hero of all of this gore. Watching these lies fall apart. I know we look at it and go, I'd never do that. No, your version's different. But we need a Savior. Judges points to Jesus. 
And the tension between what God commands and what he provides in his love is all explained and defended and settled in Christ's finished work on the cross. His standard has been met. Jesus is holy. God is satisfied. And sin has been judged perfectly and completely in Christ. And you and I, by faith, we go free, forgiven and holy, a just people with new hearts and new minds, with the Holy Spirit living in us. That is the story of Scripture. It's the story of judges. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I pray right now for the gospel, even in the midst of a narrative like this, to settle in our hearts that this is us without Jesus. This is our inclination without help. So God, I pray for help. Open our eyes to the places where we're inconsistent, where we've added to Jesus alone. I pray, God, you lean on us so much that we have to repent and we walk in your ways. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.